I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be introducing you all to Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Dr. Gottfried is a board-certified gynecologist and physician scientist. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and completed residency at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Gottfried is a global keynote speaker who practices evidence-based integrative precision and functional medicine. She is clinical assistant professor in Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Sydney Kimmel Medical College, Thomas Jefferson University, and Director of Precision Medicine at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. Her three New York Times bestselling books include The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, Younger, and her latest Brain Body Diet. Dr. Sarah Gottfried is incredible. I have been a huge fan of her work for over 10 years now, and she is one of the most intelligent, pioneering and courageous women in the space of women's health that I have ever encountered. She has such a profound gift and she offers so much to us as women in terms of helping us to understand and to feel empowered around our physical health. And as we talk about in this interview, the deep understanding and link between our physical, biological and hormonal health and how that impacts how we feel about ourselves, our emotions, and our overall mental health and well-being. I have had the honor and the privilege to get to know Sarah a little bit more personally in recent months, and she just blows me away. Her level of presence, curiosity, her ability to ask questions, and for her to listen and listen really deeply always inspires me and leaves me wanting more. And I'm hoping that Dr. Gottfried will grace us again with her presence on this podcast. I could have gone on for hours asking her more and more questions. She is such a wealth of information and I believe just such an incredible, incredible gift to us as women at this time in history. So I know you're going to soak up every word of this interview 
and I hope you enjoy it. And I also, because of Sarah's incredible presence and sharing, was moved and organically inspired to share more than I have so far about my own experiences with postpartum depression and anxiety. So I hope that some of my storytelling and sharing in this interview is also valuable and meaningful for you as you walk your journey wherever you are in this moment. Okay, enjoy. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, welcome. Emma, thank you. So happy to be here. I am so incredibly honored and grateful to have you here. And I have been looking forward to this interview for weeks. So I just really want to thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. So everyone got to hear about you, your more formal background, the incredible work that you do in the world. And I am just an enormous fan. I've been such a fan of yours for over 10 years now. And I have probably way too many questions <laughs> to ask you today, but I'm wondering if before we get into all of that, if you'd be willing to share with us a little bit more from you personally about what got you interested in medicine and what had you choose to become an OBGYN? Yeah, I love that question. And, you know, for me, I didn't grow up planning to go into medicine. A lot of people do. I was more in that camp of, ooh, blood freaks me out and guts kind of freak me out. And I can't imagine going into medicine, even though I was kind of pushed in that direction because of doing well in math and science and biology. So I had kind of this interesting turn. I was studying engineering in college. I had a grandfather who was an engineer and I was actually in a, a graduate program in bioengineering. When I had a boyfriend, someone I'm no, no longer with, who was planning to go into medicine and his father was a physician. And after getting to know me, he said to me, Sarah, why aren't you going into medicine? Like it's, it's a way that you pull together science, but you're not alone with the truth. Like you can do it in a collaborative environment. And his words just really resonated for me. It felt like, oh my gosh, someone really gets who I am and what I care about. I need to relook at this whole medicine thing. So that really changed everything. I, you know, started studying for the MCAT. I applied and that's how I got into medicine. Going into obstetrics and gynecology is a bit different. When I landed at a Harvard Medical School, I had had women's studies classes in college. In fact, those were my favorite classes along with the, the engineering classes. And I had this, you know, kind of awareness for the first time about what we're up against as women. And as I started to go through medicine, I realized there's two standards. There's a standard for men. And so much of the research had been done on men and assumed to apply to women. At that time, very few women were enrolled in research studies. The guidelines, the, uh, you know, the, the practice of medicine was based on men and 
women were thought of as kind of these smaller versions of men or men with breasts. And so that's what got me to kind of realize, wow, there's a lot of work to be done for women. So women's health was really attractive to me. I kind of loved everything, Emma. Mm -hmm. I loved psychiatry. I loved uh, surgery. I loved primary care. I loved um, kind of the intellectual process of internal medicine. And I realized with obstetrics and gynecology that I could, I could work on this mission to change women's lives, but I could also do all these things that I love. So it was kind of a perfect package in some ways. I mean, there, there's some issues. It's still male dominated. It's not quite big enough of a frame for me, mm -hmm. but I, I had, you know, often it comes down to our girlfriends and I, I had a really, a set of close friends through medical school. And one of them is a woman named Lisa Harris. And she and I figured out kind of early on that the personal is political. That our personal experiences as women in medicine, as, you know, in a female body, those could be mapped onto policy. You know, there's a bigger why behind it. And so we both ended up going into obstetrics and gynecology. In fact, I remember on match day, which is kind of the day uh, in your fourth year that you figure out where you're going to go for the next four years, in this case for residency, we opened our envelopes together hmm. and we both matched, uh, you know, this is in Boston, we both matched at the University of California, San Francisco. And we were so excited because we didn't think they would take two Harvard students, but they did. <laughs> so that's a bit about, you know, how I got into medicine and also how this whole began, this whole story began with women and women's health and um, these challenges that women are up against. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I got chills when you said the personal is political and it is like, I feel that so intensely right now with what we're up against in our political climate and the Supreme Court and just how you cannot separate the two and how particularly for women's lives, they can't be divorced. Like they, ha they have to be equally considered and, and um, talked about. So I'm wondering, what was it like for you to be a woman at, you know, one of, I think the most elite medical schools in the country like, what was it like to be in the training of medicine as a female? Well, it was rough. Um, you know, I, I just was reading a report that medical trainees are more than 50% female now. And that was not the case in 1989. Um, there was not a lot of diversity, even if... You know, I, I think at the time women made up maybe 40% of the medical school class, but I was in this special program. I was in this Harvard MIT physician scientist program. It was called at the time Health Sciences and Technology. So we had a group of like 40 students and about six women. So it didn't feel that different than my engineering classes because those are the kind of numbers that I had. But it meant that 
96% of my professors were male. You know, the, the kind of awareness and uh, consciousness that we had in class was totally wrapped around a white male lens. So, you know, in many ways, I consider that a gift because it got me to see, okay, this is how I'm getting educated, but there's another way to do this. Like there's, there's another way to do this. It's much more inclusive that provides um, justice and testimony to women. And, you know, I wouldn't say it turned me into a firebrand, but it, it lit a fire that continues to this day where I just felt like, you know, I, I don't want other women to suffer like this. You know, I wish I could tell you, for instance, Emma, that I had these amazing female mentors who had figured it all out at Harvard Medical School or MIT and, you know, kind of took me by the hand and walked me through the process. No, that, <laughs> first of all, there weren't many. Yeah. And the ones I met were not usually in this Harvard MIT program. If they were, they were PhDs. And pretty much all of the female faculty that I met at that time was so overwhelmed, you know, by kind of this, this myth of work-life balance that it was hard for them to help themselves. And I, I don't think they were empowered to help someone like me. Now, fortunately, I had mentors, um, but, you know, they, they, would, they were more like mentor moments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've had one mentor in particular who's um, I met in college who still is a mentor today. And that's actually a man. And I, I think that's important too, because although I'm framing this as kind of a male-female dichotomy, the truth is it's more about feminine, masculine, mm-hmm. uh, kind of immature masculine versus a more enlightened masculine, same thing with femininity. And this mentor that I had is... Um, He's a pulmonologist, he's a, a poet, a mountain climber who's done, you know, like Everest and Denali. He's a very gifted climber. His research is um, high altitude pulmonary edema, so he's very passionate about his, his work and his contributions to science. He's a mystic. And I, I realized, you know, that's what I needed, male or female. I needed that kind of guidance. Yes. I mean, that makes so much sense when I think about you and your work because it, it transcends and includes medicine is my experience. So to hear that one of your most influential mentors was a mystic, I'm like, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, he still is. You know, it's, it's lovely to, to chart his experience. I met him in 1984, 1985, we just had lunch a couple months ago before COVID. And, um, you know, we had this sweet conversation, Emma, where we were talking about our kids. And I have two daughters, and I hope we'll we'll talk about mother-daughter experiences. One daughter just went back to college in Minnesota. The other daughter is 15, so she's uh, 
a sophomore in high school. And I was talking to him about like the challenges and gifts of parenting. And he had this look on his face that was really kind of interesting because he's got four kids. They're all grown now. And I was, I was asking about, you know, one challenge in particular that I have with my older daughter. And he said, you know, I was asking him, have you faced anything like this with your kids? And he's like, no. You know, he was talking about how he's never had an experience of disconnection mm. with his kids. Wow. I'm like, <laughs> I need to know about this. <laughs> exactly. I was like, what? Like, I was, so <laughs> I was so curious about that, but it's, it speaks to the commitment that he has to like total integration. And I would say his, his job as a father is his most important an honorable role. Mm. And he structures the rest of his life around that. Mm. So, you know, another lesson learned. <laughs> so you, I'm curious about that, Sarah, because you've had incredible success. I mean, New York Times bestseller, so many people know and love your work. You are married, you have two beautiful children. Like, I just feel like when I think of you, I'm like, success, success, success. And I'm wondering how have you made decisions in terms of your role as a mother and your work, your mission in the world? How have you navigated that? Yeah, I love that question. I would say in fits and starts, (laughs) it may look good on the outside, but, you know, I think we all have that experience of realizing that what you see on social media is not necessarily the whole story. And, you know, when I'm on social media, I try to be really honest about my vulnerabilities because I feel like they've led to my competencies mm-hmm. and they, you know, constantly point out to me my incompetencies. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'm going to get quiet here for a moment because when I went through uh, college, you know, with a really high GPA and doing well in the MCAT and graduate school and the papers that I published, like all of those outward achievements, going through medical school, getting kind of this outstanding medical student award at the end, getting a research fellowship, going through residency where I was working 120 hours a week for four years. None of that was as hard as when I became a mother. So, you know, what I remember when I was 32 and I, I had my daughter is that, um, I had never been so exhausted in my life. Like I I just felt like um, even staying up for 36 hours was nothing compared to, I think the, the, the awe mixed with the responsibility mixed with, uh, you know, kind of the sense of, I want her life to be different. I want her to feel like her voice is heard no matter what. 
I want to create a sanctuary for her. And I think that was the right thing to do. But it's, I would say having daughters is by far the greatest challenge that I've had. And I'm not saying that, you know, I, I just imagine kind of them listening and maybe not interpreting that the right way. It's, it's about a calling and an honor and like a, a feeling of love that maybe nothing else touches. Yeah. Oh. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. And I I just feel you on such a deep level and I I resonate. I um I don't know if I've told you this, but my father was a Harvard professor. I grew up in the Boston area. And oh, I did not know this, Emma. <laughs> Tell yes. me more. I'm getting hot here. Let me take this <laughs> And so, and I'm extremely close with my father. I love him dearly. And, um, and I was really born and bred in that very high expectation, high intellectual achievement based world. And I actually did very well with it until I was, um, I would say late adolescent and early college, my body just started to break down with pretty severe anxiety um, just because of the amount of pressure and expectation I had on myself. And I, becoming a mother has completely upended and altered my life in such an intense way. So like when you're describing entering motherhood and being a mother of a daughter, like I just feel like I'm a, I'm a completely different person two and a half years later than I was before entering that process. And what my journey was to basically get out from underneath those systems and expectations and um, ways of being that were so not who I was, it, it took me about 30 years to feel like I could exist and I could be me and I could live and breathe and express myself in a way that had me in general contented and fulfilled and okay in the world. And to now feel that I have the responsibility to steward my daughter and to hopefully set things up from the beginning so that she can start where it took me 30 years to begin is like, it just feels like the enormity of that feels massive. Well, it is. Um, thank you for sharing that, Emma. Um, it's it's interesting. We've had these social Zooms together uh, over the past few months, which I've really enjoyed. And somehow we haven't talked about um, your family of origin. Yeah. And growing up in kind of that Brahmin Boston environment. And uh, I really appreciate that word enormity because I feel it too. I think most conscious mothers feel that. And I don't know if it's different with boys. Um, maybe not. 
But for me, what you're describing, and tell me if this resonates for you, I think there's a process of like growing up in our family of origin and having this frame of reference for, you know, what, for your job description. And it, it can take definitely through adolescence and for most of us a few more decades before we get to a place where we question that at the deepest level and say, you know, does this serve me? Like, isn't this someone else's idea of achievement and what I'm supposed to be doing? Yes. It sounds so easy, but it's, it's actually, when you're in it, it is so hard to discern. You know, when you've internalized these values for so long, in adolescence, I'm told, lasts until 26, like when you've internalized for so long to then say, okay, what are my six to seven statements about achievement, about mission, about vision and values for my life? Like getting so conscious about it. And I, I think motherhood in many ways forces you to do that. What do you think? I, I completely agree. It, it forces it. And that's, I, ha- I ended up having a massive experience um, when I gave birth to my daughter and I was basically taken out for an entire year. And I can share more about that with you maybe as we get into all of your incredible work, but, but I really feel like as I've made meaning of that experience, I can now see that it was like the final acts that I needed to come down to draw the line in the sand and just say, no more. I'm not going to live by anybody else's values or expectations or standards of me anymore. Like I am now a mother and I am now a mother of a daughter and come hell or high water, I will let her be free. And I will let myself be free because that's the only way that I can let her be free. Amen. That's, that's so profound, Emma. I mean, you're making me misty because of the truth of it. And um, it speaks to the wisdom of the body and the way that, you know, sometimes we get these, these rumblings or we get these symptoms that, you know, point us in another direction. And sometimes we listen to them. Most of the time we medicate over them. And when you're really tuned into that or when you're forced <laughs> because you have no choice, you know, it's a, to me, that's women's health. Like that's that decoding process and that level of curiosity and inquiry about what we're up against. Like to me, that, that is women's health. That is the conversation right there. Oh, I love that. I love it. The decoding and the, and like the layers, like, okay, I may have this symptom, anxiety or depression or whatever it is, but what else is at play here? Yeah. What else is at play? And, you know, we live 
we still live in this mainstream model that separates them, right? You know, oh, you've got a mental health issue. Oh, you've got a physical health issue. As if they were separate and they're not. They're so interdependent. And we've got, you know, 20, 25 years of scientific research to validate it. Whether it's the gut-brain axis or the role of the microbiome or, you know, how inflammation in your gut and elsewhere in your body can affect uh, your neuroendocrine system. There's a lot of complexity to it, but, um, you know, my hope is that women don't see a symptom like anxiety as something that just needs to be kind of paved over Mm -hmm. with, you know, whatever the drug du jour is. And there's a time and a place for the drug. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not totally against drugs. I just think they're used too readily. And I also think that there's this divine process that could be missed if we're not paying attention. So if we reach for the Xanax or we reach for the Lexapro or we reach for the Zoloft or whatever it is, like you might miss that opportunity. I mean, fortunately, the opportunity is always there. <laughs> yes. And you can, you can pursue the opportunity along with the medication. But I think it's important to realize that, you know, it's not like it's some moral failing. Mm-hmm. This is usually like some whispering and later like a loud chant if we are paying attention. Yeah. Oh, I love this. And so I'm wondering, Sarah, for the women who are listening, who might be having some type of symptom, because I feel like a woman's life, you know, we have so many different symptoms and experiences that we go through. It's just like part of womanhood. Where do you recommend that women start if they are having, let's call it an unwanted experience? Hmm. And how do you recommend that they start to differentiate or discern, like, where do I need to turn to help this unwanted experience? Yeah, I always think in terms of threes. So let me, let me see if I can come up with a, a threesome for you. Okay. <laughs> so I would say, first of all, assume there's a biological component, regardless of the symptom. And I can tell you, after 25 plus years of doing this, there's pretty much always a biological component. Like this idea that we can separate uh, biology from emotions and psychology and separate it from the spiritual process and what's happening at a soul level is just not true. So I would say, number one, assume that there's a biological component. Number two, test it. So don't suffer in silence. Like, let's get empowered and test you. And if your primary care doctor won't run a hormone panel or won't look at inflammation in your body, then find a way to fund it yourself. You know, there's a lot of labs that do this. Uh, Wellness FX is an example. And maybe in the show notes, we can give a few options. Absolutely, yes. So my med lab, Wellness FX, uh, there's a company called Longevity that I really like. And, and test and just see, you know, what, what's the root cause? And then third, I would say, find a collaborative clinician. 
So assuming that they found someone like you, Emma, and they can start to dig deep, uh, especially in the psychological and the spiritual realm, I think there's also a need for, uh, just like in birth, you know, kind of a doula, a midwife, maybe a physician, maybe a nurse practitioner, like it doesn't matter so much who that person is, but someone who's collaborative and open-minded and isn't just going to say, okay, you have anxiety, here's the prescription, see you in a month. So I would say those three things. I love that. And someone to really hold the whole picture. It doesn't matter necessarily what that professional training is, but somebody who's willing to ask a more holistic question or questions about what might be the cause or where are the intersecting causes and how do we get you to the right place? That's right. I mean, I haven't talked about food or nutrition or, you know, micronutrient deficiencies or exercise or purpose and meaning. Like I haven't gotten to any of those things, but you know, you, you can't really take all of those things on at once. Yes. Sometimes you just need, you need like a life raft. Totally. And I would say those three things are the life raft. I love that. And I also just want to mention your book, The Hormone Cure, which I am obsessed with. I love all of your books, but I think that one is, in a, it's been an amazing tool for me and a few of the women I know to know how to start to make links between symptoms and hormonal patterns, and then being able to bring that book even to a doctor who may be open, but not thinking in the same way to be able to test for certain things that maybe would have gotten missed had had the patient or the person not advocated for themselves. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I wrote the book for exactly that purpose because when I was in my 30s and I was postpartum, and I had, I had postpartum depression with my first daughter. I was a wreck. And I, I went to my primary care provider. You know, poor guy. I've been beating up on him for quite a long time now. But, you know, he, he got me into action because I gave him my list of woes. You know, I couldn't lose the baby weight. I didn't want to have sex with my husband. I was so depleted, like I couldn't imagine how I could go on. Like I was way too young to feel so terrible. And he wrote a prescription for Prozac. I was not depressed. So I, you know, that's what started kind of this, this feeling of humiliation, which turned into maybe a little righteous indignation that then got me to say, you know, I have a hunch my hormones are out of whack. And so I went to the lab from his office and that's where I realized, okay, my stress hormone cortisol is three times what it should have been. And my thyroid was affected. I had estrogen dominance. And so I created what I needed at that point to try to solve what I was up against. So there's a questionnaire in the book, page 24 to 31, I think, that goes through exactly what you described, like how to take a pattern of symptoms and map it onto the root cause. It's genius, Sarah. I just, you are amazing. I can feel that the little engineering seed 
<laughs> that you described at the beginning. Like seriously, it's it's brilliant. It is such a missing link for women and it's life-changing. Like, do you recognize how amazing your work is? I appreciate that so much. But I, I have to say, it doesn't feel brilliant to me. It feels like the personal is political. Like, it feels like I had this constellation of issues in my 30s that led to the book because mainstream medicine failed me. And so I wanted to create a reference where I just took, okay, here's the top seven hormone imbalances that I see in my practice every day. So you're, you're right that there's an engineering mind behind it in terms of breaking it into modules. It just feels um, very honest and what I was called to do. Yes. Not so much brilliant. Well, I feel the call. I feel how you were designed exactly for this contribution, Sarah. Like I feel it so deeply and how many women have been supported, made to feel less (laughs) crazy you know, how many women have felt normalized and just understood by you having the courage and the intelligence to put this together? Well, thank you. That's, that's definitely the intent. That's the intent behind it. You know, we've been dismissed. We've been dismissed. We've been pushed aside. We've been, you know, told you're just getting older and that's bullshit. Like we need to, we need to change that. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Cause I was just going to ask you, okay, like are things, do you think things are getting better for women? (laughs) You know, because, you know, you've spoken to your training obstetrics in general, like the impact of not having women integrated into scientific research. Is it getting better? So some things are getting better. I, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of a person. And you know, for those who are listening, who can't see the grateful on my shirt. Like I, I am so grateful for the, the small progress that I've seen at the same time. Let's talk about maternal mortality for a moment. Like there's good reason why women are scared to give birth. Yes. When I went through medical school, we had 7.5 maternal deaths per 100,000 people. And now we're at 17. Mm. Oh my God. So more than 2x increased. And we were number 10 in the world in terms of maternal mortality in 1989 when I landed in Boston. And on the one hand, like I thought number 10 was bad because we bragged about having the best healthcare in the world. And it didn't seem to be true when it came to women's bodies. It seemed to be true for white men with cardiovascular disease, but not for women who are giving birth. So we were number 10. Now we're number 38. So we're down around, you know, like Lebanon in terms of maternal mortality. And it's appalling. I feel sick hearing this. I feel sick too. So I, you know, I'm biracial. Black women have three to five X increased risk of death. They've got higher rates of hypertension. There's, you know, just a long list of 
the why behind it, but it's the what that I take issue with. Another example, I care a lot about the things that kill women. And so it's not just childbirth in the year afterwards. It's also, you know, the number one killer is cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease. And I care a lot about breast cancer because, you know, rates are increasing. I care a lot about Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot that I care about. But when it comes to cardiovascular disease, you know, I, I just was putting together a slide deck on women and cardiovascular disease and my personalized approach to it. And I was trying to find other people who've written papers on this and there's just not much there. The guidelines are still written based on data that's including men. Even today, women make up only about 30% or one third of the research subjects in the studies that we have. So we haven't made much progress. And in fact, there's this whole Go Red for Women campaign that I've been watching. I don't know about this. Yeah, so Go Red for Women, it's about raising awareness among women so that women realize that their chance of dying of heart disease is seven to 10 times their chance of dying of breast cancer. So there's a whole public health message around this. And frankly, I've been underwhelmed Mm -hmm. by the success of this campaign. And I just was reading a paper where they compared women's awareness of cardiovascular disease in 2009 to 2019. So 10 years, our awareness has gone down in terms of cardiovascular disease being the number one killer. So are we making progress? Yes and no. It's, it's never fast enough for me. And, you know, there's so many different layers to it. I think we've made progress in how women connect with each other and support each other. And that gives me a lot of hope. Like, I, I do feel like my daughter's are having a different conversation than I had at their age. So that that fills me with reverence and enthusiasm. But the more objective measures, I wish I had more positive things to say. Yeah. I sound like Debbie Downer, but um, you know, this it just means the work is the work remains. Like it, we have to do it. We have yes. to like roll up our sleeves and get it done. Oh my goodness, yes. I I feel heartened hearing that your daughters are having a different conversation. I'm like, okay, that gives me hope because my daughter's only two. You know, she's not ready for those conversations. But I'm also just wondering about inside the medical community. Like, are you in groups and networks with your peers or residents coming up if it's, you know, 50% of medical students are female now, like that gives me hope. Like what's the conversation in your, among your colleagues? Yeah, I would say the students definitely give me hope. They give me hope in terms of changing the conversation about women's health, but also changing the conversation about social determinants of health and changing the conversation about implicit bias and realizing how much racism exists in medicine. So I have a lot of hope from talking to students. Another place that gives me hope 
is, you know, I have this new uh, faculty appointment at Thomas Jefferson University. Congratulations. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm just really thrilled about it. And the chair of the department is a totally brilliant person who's got this vision and history is on his side. So he was able to found the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences. And it was very important to him to include nutritional science at this major university, Thomas Jefferson. And it's on par with the Department of Surgery, the Department of Medicine. So that is such a thrill for me, like to see this process of integration happening at a mainstream academic medical center. So, you know, it's the only department in the world, <laughs> which makes me sad, but, you know, we got to start somewhere. So that's where we're going to be doing the research that proves the model, doing the research to change the standard of care for women, doing the research that needs to be done so that mainstream medicine pays attention to the past 25 years of scientific literature that we have about the importance of integration, the importance of food, the importance of nutrition, and not, you know, this old model, this old knee-jerk response of, oh, you have depression, here's a prescription. Sarah, they are so lucky to have you. And and I, from my understanding, I, obviously I'm not in the medical industry, but th this is massive because from what I've heard, doctors get like a few hours of nutritional training over the course of their whole medical school training. That's so this, right. This is like enormous. It is enormous. So I got about 30 minutes of nutrition at Harvard Medical School. And, you know, I've heard Andrew Weil talk about how he got 30 minutes when he went to Harvard Medical School and he's, you know, 20 years older than me. So it's a sad state of affairs. And yet, when we take something like diabetes, which is an epidemic, I've had pre-diabetes in the past, so this is another place where the personal is political. But if you take something like diabetes, what we know from decades of research is that lifestyle medicine, like paying attention to the food that you have on your fork, paying attention to exercise, paying attention to sleep and your feelings, paying attention to your psychology, all of those things are more effective than just throwing a pill at it. And yet, we are not teaching our doctors how to provide that kind of care. So there's this total gap where we know on the one hand from the scientific literature what works with diabetes, lifestyle medicine, and yet we're not training our clinicians to do it. So that we have to change. And that's where the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences comes in. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And I just feel, I feel your fierceness and I feel the feminine, like all everything you're saying, like the food, the relationships, the psychology, the sleep, like these are the things that I feel like, I don't want to overgeneralize, but it's like what we already know and do intuitively as women, but we have gotten taken off track from because of patriarchy. 
or, you know, the ensuing systems as a result of that, whatever you want to call it. And so just to feel like this army of women, like coming in and then even these little breakthroughs or big breakthroughs of people being trained differently. I'm like, it's, we have such a need for this revolution. There is a need. And I, you know, I want to call out the men too, because this shouldn't all be on women's shoulders, right? Like we need, we need partners, we need advocates, we need mentors, we need people who are open-minded, people who've bought into this idea that there could be another way. So, you know, half of the department that I'm joining is male, but these are not your typical professors. These are you know, often the kind of people that go into integrative medicine are people who have struggled themselves. And so they've been confronted with those whisperings that we were talking about. They've been confronted with the wisdom of the body and they learned a different way. I love that. And it's powerful to have people who have had experiences and then know firsthand, like this doesn't work. We need to try it differently or maybe some parts of it work, but the whole thing as a, as a large package needs some improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh my gosh, Sarah, I could talk to you forever. Um, I just can't have you on the podcast and not talk to you about birth. Is it, or do you feel okay if we switch gears a little bit and I ask oh, you some course. questions? Yeah, I love talking about birth. Okay, Please. so you talked about maternal mortality rates in this country. You talked about your own experience as a first-time mother with postpartum depression. Can you shed some light on like what happens during birth that you're aware of, whether that's the biological framework, the spiritual framework, like what is actually going on? And then what's going on in that postpartum time that is seems to be so powerful, so vulnerable, so volatile in many ways. Well, maybe we can riff on this together, Emma, because I know you've thought a lot about this. And, you know, I would say the psychological, spiritual side is something that I think about a lot, but it's not as well articulated. So maybe I'll start with the biology because that's always the easiest place You know, for a lot of women, when you're trying to get pregnant, it's a really interesting window because if you're struggling with it, and I'm not in any way blaming women who have infertility or subfertility, but often that's one of the first places where we're confronted with this experience of our body and, you know, kind of this warm animal that we have to deal with. And if you're, you know, if you're someone like me who I used to be like a cortisol junkie, just kind of, I wasn't even aware of how much stress I carried in my body. You know, like the load of cortisol that I was running around with was ridiculous. And I didn't even see it until I was about 35. So a lot of women live that way. And it's, it's like, they don't know it until they test. So getting pregnant is kind of this first opportunity. And then pregnancy itself is really a stress test 
Light is the most intense stress test you can imagine. You, you know, we've all heard about the, the cardiovascular stress test where you get on a treadmill and you do a bruise protocol and you go as hard as you can for as long as you can and you're like running and huffing and puffing. Pregnancy is like that, but it's for 12 months. <laughs> it's so intense. Right? So it's a stress test. It's a huge stress test of your cardiovascular system, of your endothelial cells that line your vascular system. We're just learning now about, you know, we know about the five traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, smoking, et cetera. But now there's these 395 other emerging risk factors, things like endometriosis, high blood pressure in pregnancy, preterm labor and delivery, having a small gestational age baby, you know, a weight that's less, uh, less than the fifth percentile. There's all of these risk factors that portend a greater risk of cardiovascular disease 10, 20, 30 years later. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff. And most OBGYNs have no idea. Most cardiologists have no idea. Um, so there's this profound physical process happening along with the psychological process of preparing to have a baby. And if we just talk about the neuroendocrine system, you know, kind of the hormones, we go from kind of this daily fluctuation that's relatively predictable unless you have polycystic ovary syndrome, another risk factor for cardiovascular disease. But every day, if you have a 28-day cycle, for instance, you've got kind of this level of estrogen and progesterone that fluctuates depending on which day you are. So day 12, you have your peak estradiol, day 14, you have an LH surge, luteinizing hormone. That then triggers ovulation, then progesterone rises, and it peaks around day 21. So we have kind of this changing level of hormones each day, which I think makes us very accommodating. I love this. Say more. So I think there's this veil that we have that kind of makes us roll with the punches because we're used to so much change in terms of our hormones. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of women, when they get pregnant, they're like, oh, I'm not dealing with that estrogen progesterone thing every day, the way that I have been for the past 24, 30 years. I'm going to speak my truth. Like, I, I'm excited to speak my truth. Oh my God, I love that. And so often women have this you know, kind of honeymoon period during their pregnancy where they, they feel like really empowered and they really feel embodied and they like, you know, are really at home in their body in a way they haven't been before. That's my hope, right? Like that's, that's kind of the goal. Medicine often gets in the way and like scares us to death so that it's hard to, you know, inhabit this body, but hopefully you have a good experience. I think you know, midwives and doulas definitely help with that process. And I learned obstetrics and gynecology originally from midwives. So my model is different than kind of the standard obstetrician model. So you go from this accommodating, you know, day one to 28 estrogen and progesterone levels to pretty sky high hormones that make a lot of us feel good. Not everybody. You know, some women with bipolar, a lot of women have depression, a lot of women have anxiety. So there's still issues that we have to deal with. 
you have these sky high levels of uh, the estrogen in this case, which is the whole family, is estriol, and high levels of progesterone. And then you give birth to this baby and you have hopefully a transcendent experience and you deliver the baby, you deliver the placenta and your hormones go from quite high to almost nothing. And that is a whole new kind of stress test. So some women sail through it, no problem. They don't see what the fuss is. And then there's people like me who have a, a pretty rocky time. I'm pretty dependent on estradiol and estriol. So, you know, I, I remember Emma with my first baby. Uh, it was like day three after I delivered her and I was breastfeeding her. I was like holding her in my arms and like gazing at her. And I, I started sweating. You know, it was like 68 degrees in our room. I was like sweating profusely. Yeah. And I started bawling. Yes. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and here I am in OBGYN. I'm like, oh my goodness, I am having a hot flash. Like, yes. what? So, yeah, postpartum is a preview of coming attractions in perimenopause. So, h- help me understand that. Like, is that for your bio individuality, like how you handle that massive drop in hormones sort of previews how you're going to handle it in menopause? Yeah. I mean, it, it tells you hormones are pretty complicated and, you know, it's not just the levels. I'm kind of simplifying in some ways when I talk about, you know, the sky high level when you're pregnant and before you give birth and deliver your placenta to having almost nothing, there's other issues too. So it's not just production of hormones, it's also receptor physiology, it's also detoxification, like what have you been eating? Have you been eating lots of broccoli and lots of different species of uh, vegetables or have you been eating Pop-Tarts? Like all of these things are involved. But yes, it's this, what women tend to respond to, those of us that are sensitive to it, is the delta. So it's the change in hormones, the change in hormones postpartum, the change in hormones, usually in a good direction during pregnancy, the change in hormones that happens in perimenopause, and then the change of hormones that happens in menopause. Same thing with puberty. So puberty, you know, is like perimenopause in reverse. So it's those transitions that seem to trigger mood issues. Yes. For those of us that are sensitive to it. Yeah. It's so powerful to hear you talk about the science, you know, not being trained in it because I, I had really intense postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Like, and I'm some, I've never had a mood disorder. I'm, you know, I have my feelings and I feel things deeply, but I've never struggled um, with my mental health in that like true kind of struggle way. And it was humbling and terrifying. I thought I was never, I remember saying to my mom, my friends, to Keith, I was just like, I don't know how anybody ever recovers from this. I mean, it was so life altering, identity altering in that profundity of exhaustion, like you mentioned earlier, 
and just like, like incapable. Like I have to do the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, which is keep another human being alive. And I'm not here to do it. Yeah. It was the worst feeling. It is the worst feeling. And I think in many ways we set women up to fall because we do not tell them about what's happening and we do not support them. Yeah. And I, I want to hear about your experience. My experience when I was postpartum with that first baby, I did not have this experience with my second baby. So the hopeful part here is mm-hmm. that you can completely change the architecture of your next birth. That gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. But with that first baby, I just sat there bawling. It was so stark and so dark and terrifying, so lonely. Yeah. So isolating. And I was surrounded by people I love. I know, me too. I mean, we have incredible community. People are bringing food. I have this incredibly supportive husband, family. Like, I could not imagine having more on some level and still... I got that far gone. I'm like, how, how do we not, how do we do this better, Sarah? How do we not set women up like this? Cause it really, it does feel like a setup. I was educated. I used to be a birth doula myself. I'd been around countless friends who had had babies and gone through it. And I still got pummeled. Yeah. Well, I don't want to pretend like I have, you know, here's the seven steps to prevent this from happening to you. I mean, there's some of that. There's some things that can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is the heavy lift of really understanding what's happening physiologically, functionally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, those pieces. Like I, I look back now, I thought I knew what was going on. I did not. I had a level of ignorance that is embarrassing. Mm. So I think that's part of it. Another part is we ignore women after they give birth. So even with the meal train of, you know, the cooler and the food arriving and the supportive husband and maybe a mother visiting, There's, that's where we need the village. Like we need the tent. We need the village. Totally. It's a different experience than, you know, coming over and bringing a lasagna and staying for 10 minutes. It's having those hard conversations right away. Not waiting for some six week visit or, um, and you know, some women need hormonal support. Yes. Someone need like a little estrogen patch to like make it through. I probably needed that. <laughs> yeah. And like, and that we don't, nobody talks to us about that. No. Like I, I remember, you know, I had an amazing team of nurse midwives and OBGYN and they, they cared about me and they were concerned, but they, they basically just kept referring me to therapy. <laughs> right. And that's what we do. We're like, oh, you're a new mom. I know it's so exhausting, right? Yeah. Like, no, (laughs) you're not getting it. (laughs) This is not some, you know, postpartum blues. Like we need to. 
call in the troops, man. We gotta, we gotta totally. I know. And I kept saying them, I'm like, I am a therapist. I know all the best trauma therapists in the whole County. And I'm telling you, like, I literally, I would feel like I wanted to scratch and crawl out of my skin or I just couldn't stop crying. Or, I mean, I just, I just felt like the world had ended. This is where I want people to think of biology first, you know, not, not at the expense of these other pieces that are so important and intertwined and interdependent, but like, let's address the biology along with those other things. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's been such a wake up call for me and why I love your work so much, Sarah, because I'm just like, we can't, we can't separate these worlds And as a therapist, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to my clients if certain things are going on and I don't bring up the biology. I can't help them with it, but I know where to send them to help them. Sure. Well, that's that's a huge service. I mean, just having that conversation is that can open up a whole world of healing. Yeah. And it works better because of the other work you're doing. Like that's the beautiful part of the interdependence is that being, you know, having that container with you is going to make the biological factors, it's going to make a return to homeostasis more likely. Oh my gosh, I love that. Or some new homeostasis, which is even better because that's my experience, especially with postpartum mothers, is that we reach a different state of homeostasis. It's not like what it was a year ago or two years ago, it is a whole new level of homeostasis that could serve you better, which I think you were speaking to in terms of your truth. Yeah. So tell us like what, cause I've heard of this thing called synaptic pruning that happens in the mother's brain for two years after birth. And, and I'm feeling like just recently I am arriving at a whole new level of homeostasis. So what, what goes on there? Like, what's the opportunity? Yeah. Well, synaptic pruning is where you're trimming neurons uh, in the brain. And this happens all the time. So, you know, similar to, I think the, the analogy that can be very helpful is if you think of bone, you know, you reach kind of this peak bone mass sometime between 30 and 35. And then the balance between pulling bone up and depositing bone, that balance starts to shift between 30 and 35. So similarly, in the brain, we've got this process of creating synapses, connections between neurons, and breaking them down, pruning them. We do that because there's a lot of memories and other things in our brain that we don't need. Like, I I don't need the number for the pizza (laughs) place that's down the road. It just doesn't serve me. I need to make some room for other memories that are more important. So synaptic pruning is this process, but what happens when you're postpartum, and this is relatively newish data, is that you have an accelerated process of synaptic pruning. So it's part of the reason why a lot of us postpartum have brain fog and feel like, you know, can't remember the the word of some, you know, something that's on the tip of the tongue that's known as anomia. That's a very common symptom postpartum. So synaptic pruning goes on for a couple of years and a lot of people can feel it. There's some hypotheses about why this is, that we're making room for kind of this this job of motherhood. 
and we're making space for this connection to this baby. And so we got to clear out some of that old, unuseful synaptic connection so that we can make room for this, this new primary focus. But what happens is that, um, I'm trying to remember the research. I read about this for my book, Brain Body Diet. You know, it ends up being like two to 5% of your brain volume. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Changes, like goes away. <laughs> I mean, you talk to any mom about this, they're like, oh yeah, like I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, totally. I couldn't, I couldn't recall like my most basic words for a long time there. Yeah. Like what, where's that thing that we push the baby around in? <laughs> yes. Where is it? You know, like it becomes, you start to fumble with basic conversation. And I, you know, there's another purpose to that too. I, after my first baby, I was in obstetrics and, and gynecology and all of their wisdom. They, uh, they force you to become board certified within I think it's a year after you finish residency. And so you're not allowed to take more than six weeks off. And so I happened to give birth during this time. And so I had to get back to work. I had to like have surgery cases. I had to have patients in the clinic. I had to have, you know, evidence that I didn't take more than six weeks off, including, you know, before my baby was born. So I I went back to work. And there I was seeing patients like with anomia, trying to figure out like, it was a mess. And so there's a purpose behind it. Like you're really meant to be in that tent, surrounded by girlfriends, maybe a a helpful mother and, you know, occasionally a partner so that you're able to focus on this baby and not, you know, tying someone's tubes in the operating room. Oh, the irony, Sarah, I mean that you were an OBGYN and then becoming a mother and then having to go, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. Have they changed that? I don't know. I probably not. Oh my Um, goodness. I mean, it's a very traditional field in many ways, but um, yeah. So the synaptic pruning happens and I think it's got a really important function that we don't totally understand. Yeah. But I think a lot of women can feel it. Yeah. And I also, you know, this is now opinion and maybe hypothesis. I think there's some women who are more sensitive to it than others. Yeah. And as a result, become more depleted or become more, uh, have more of a mood vulnerability. Yes, totally. That makes so much sense. And postpartum, you know, I've got a 15 year old. I am still postpartum. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That makes me feel better. I remember I went to back when we used to go to bar classes, I went to this bar class and they had like a discount for postpartum women. <laughs> and I was like, can I get the discount? And they're like, how old is your baby? I'm like, 14. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, because it it is such a, a life-defining transition. It's like, I it's altering, even though it, the altering and the quality of it changes, but... Wow, Sarah, I'm so, I feel so full. I feel so stirred and touched and just profoundly grateful that you have listened to yourself and followed 
those whispers and that call that has been true for you so that you're now in the position that you are, you know, publishing the books that you're publishing, doing the incredible work, being faculty, like you're paving the way. And I am profoundly appreciative to you. Thank you, Emma. I, I really, I love what you're doing. I love your podcast. I think it's, it's such an important beacon for us. And, um, you know, I'm just a channel. I'm just, I'm here to serve. I'm just a channel. And uh, I was listening to your podcast. I was sharing with you before on patriarchal stress disorder. And I, you know, you're just doing such an important service. I'm so grateful for that. Mm, It means so much to me. So thank you. So I have one final question for you, but I'm going to, Um, Just let everybody know that everything that Sarah talked about in terms of testing all of her books, her website, we're going to have all of that in the links for you so that you can find Sarah, read her books and plug into her incredible work. I I think it's life-changing for anybody who's wanting the support with their health as a woman. And is there anything you want to mention, Sarah, about any upcoming teaching or classes or anything you have going on that we should know about? Well, if you're a clinician listening to this, um, including therapists, you know, check out some of the education that we have at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University. We've got, you know, the price is not crazy. It's an amazing community of educators. We've got conferences many times during the year. We've got certificates, like there's a great opportunity there. The other thing I'll mention is that my practice has been closed to new patients since 2013. And in part due to COVID, I've got, you know, I've I've been so excited that, uh, you know, medicine doesn't make great leaps on its own, usually it has to be like prodded into it. And so one of the gifts of COVID is that telehealth has really grown. So I've got this telehealth practice that I'm about to launch. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go to sarahgottfreedmd.com forward slash patient. Sarah, I have been on that wait list for five years. I literally put my name on your website before I knew you. Well, the time is finally coming, Emma. I'm so excited. I didn't know that you were doing that. I'm so excited for for you and for all the women you're going to serve. I'm really excited. I'm serving men too. I actually have been taking care of men for about 10 years. They're simpler in some ways. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm taking care of men too. So you help them with their health issues, their hormonal health, and kind of that bio-individuality to optimize their health. That's right. Okay. Oh my goodness. When does it open? So we're still finalizing that. I'm working on, you know, with telehealth, the, the insurance coverage is tricky. So I'm trying to, I still have a few states um, that I'm dealing with in terms of medical license like New York, but uh, what we're hoping is January 1st. Oh my goodness. This is thrilling. You've got a lot going on over there. <laughs> We've got some fun things going on. That's great. Are you excited to get back into seeing new people in your private practice? I am. I mean, I I love the patients I've been taking care of. I've got, you know, like a group of 25 that have been with me for a long time. 
But I, I feel like, you know, part of my work is to figure out how to democratize it, like how to how to make it more accessible to more people. So there's a lot of different levels in terms of how to work with me. So I'm excited about that. Oh, I, that's awesome. And thank you for caring about that and doing the hard work to figure that out because I know it can be tricky. Oh my goodness, so rich, so full. Okay, so Sarah, the last question is if I handed you a microphone and I told you that every single woman could hear and receive your message, what would you want them to know? Change the conversation. It's your birthright. You don't have to settle for how you're feeling. You don't have to settle for the stress or, you know, whatever symptoms are keeping you small and constrained. In some ways, I would say it's our greatest opportunity to change the conversation. Thank you so much, Sarah. I love your work. I'm so grateful for you. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Emma. So happy to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.